Well, let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful for this morning, time in your word, time with each other. Help us understand the faith. In your son's name, amen. Now, in 2 Peter 3, there is end timesy stuff, okay? And I don't want you to get your hopes up. One of the almost delectable disobediences of the church is to get all wound up at end times stuffs. Uh, and part of the delection is, um, or the delectation, um, is the difference of opinion that we have, uh, the different charts and viewpoints. But I want to read this whole passage, top to bottom, to begin with, not go through it verse by verse. We'll go back, but I want to read the whole thing. This is now the second letter that I have written to you, beloved, and in both of them I've aroused your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior and through your apostles. First of all, you must understand this, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own passions, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things have continued as they were from the beginning of creation. They deliberately ignore this fact, that by the word of God, heavens existed long ago, and an earth formed out of water and by means of water, through which the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist have been stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment, the destruction of ungodly men. But do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is forbearing toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. For the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and the works that are upon it will be burned up. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of persons ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hasting the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be kindled and dissolved, and the elements will melt with fire? But according to his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you wait for these, be zealous to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the forbearance of our Lord as salvation. So also our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, speaking of this as he does in all his letters. There are some things in them hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, beware, lest you be carried away with the error of lawless men and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. It's a wonderful passage. And you're going to say, how are you going to get around all that end timesy stuff? It's going to be really easy, actually. Now, why did I want to read that whole passage? I don't normally do that. We inch our way through the passage here, look down the passage to see, there's no way he's going to get through all this. 
You can probably doze off now because I've heard the whole passage. Now, the reason I did is that something came up at Wine Wisdom and Song, and I forget the question it was on. Um, oh, we were talking about a question on the reason the, the apostolic letters were in the Bible, and someone brought up this passage in 2 Peter 3, um, uh, 16-ish at the end, about the wicked, and, uh, the ignorant and unstable twisting the writings of Paul as they do the other scriptures. So Peter includes Paul's writings and whatever he's quantifying his scriptures. So that came up in the discussion, not what our sermon is about this morning, but the passage was on my mind and, and I looked at it, hadn't been in it for a few years. And, uh, but I was looking right at that passage. Verse 16 of chapter 3, right down there at the bottom of this. We'll start halfway through 15. So also our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, speaking of this as he does in all his letters. There are some things in them hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, beware lest you be carried away with the error of lawless men and lose your own stability. Basically telling you that in the church, in Christendom, there are teachers who are ignorant and unstable. And they make a business. They fill the airwaves, they fill the book publishers, they fill our time. Misinterpreting Paul. Misinterpreting all the scriptures. And it's warning us, the point of the passage, I mean, apart from your curiosity about the elements melting as with fire, again, lighten up, Francis. We are told that we are to, knowing this beforehand, take care. Beware, lest you be carried away. There's that warning in, in Timothy to... Uh, weak women who are led astray because they are burdened with sin, swayed by various impulses, who will listen to anybody and never come to a knowledge of the truth. We know that we, those of you who are on the inner tubes, look at that stuff and you go, everyone is saying everything they're saying with such confidence and authority and they can't all be right. Most of them are wrong. What am I supposed to do? The, the, the average parishioner, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to handle this? Um, you can't just go, well, because what I believe is right. You could just be one of the ignorant and unstable. You could have just been right because someone ignorant and unstable told you that that was true, whatever it is. You know... You've been in arguments, right, about the book of Romans, occasionally. You've been in arguments about Revelation, end times. You've been in arguments about a, a, any portion of scripture. The creation. I mean, you could, you'd think that Christians could get together and go, yeah, okay, we believe God made the world. But you can't. There are Christians who 
don't have a creationist mentality. They believe the gospel. They believe man was sinful. They believe Jesus died for their sins and that Jesus is God. But they believe entirely the teaching of a secular professor. There are Christians who don't believe in tongues and people who do believe in tongues. There are Christians who um, think baptism is really important and some people who think baptism is not so important. We know that we're in these tussles and sometimes almost angry levels of difference, if not actually angry. I am... Every so often, if you study history, and some of you have, if you study history, you know that we are holding on to civilization very, very slightly. People killing other people for their ideas isn't just because it's Islam. Killing people for their ideas, Christians used to be really good at that. Okay? And just because we're in a civilized society, they did it in civilized societies. And, but for the grace of God, we will be in a situation where people, where people will get to that point. Killing one another, burning people at the stake, because, well, heaven knows we can't have a six-day creationist walking around. He might change our, he would do a Socrates on your kids. So we know that this is an important thing, this, this interpretation of the truth, the things revealed by God in Paul and in the other scriptures. Ignorant and unstable people twist it and it ends in their destruction. You are supposed to be guarding against it, knowing this beforehand, because you don't want to be ignorant, you don't want to be lawless, and you don't want to be unstable. So... As I thought about it, you know, it says, it's, I said, this could be a really powerful sermon. Because Peter says, wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, speaking of this as he does in all of his letters. And I was going to go, even though I didn't have enough time this morning, I was going to go find all the references in Paul where he spoke of these things. And build a sermon where Paul spoke of all these things. Yet I realized I should get up earlier. It wasn't going to happen. I said, well, how am I going to approach this? We don't want to be ignorant. We don't want to be unstable. What things would Peter suggest to you, knowing this beforehand, that you beware? Well, what am I supposed to beware about, and how am I supposed to deal with this? Well, I said, well, the closest thing, although there is a lot of good teaching in the Scripture, that you can come up with things from all over the Word of God to help you in this process, I said, well, are there any hints in this passage, in the context itself, that we just read rapidly right over with all that end time stuff, you know, fogging our windshield? Is there anything in that that would suggest to you how a Christian ought to think about what they're hearing from Bible teachers? It's not merely bad hairstyles that identify Bible teachers, bad Bible teachers. Um, that's why whenever my hair gets a little longish, I have Leslie cut it. She likes it a little longer. Eh, I don't want to have any comparisons to a televangelist happening. 
because you get that, you, when you have a full head of hair and, and a wave, and I have a, a nice wave, uh, it, it, it looks like I care too much. It looks like I think that's charming. I'd rather look like a high and tight marine instead of, uh, instead of that. But we know those things are dead giveaways. Certain, you know, money consciousness, the guy always talking about your seed gift and what you need to give to get stuff from God. But what about the, the really respected ones? Really respected ones. Now, I, I like theology. It's an avocational thing. I enjoy talking about it. I enjoy uh, working on it, just thinking about it. I don't, I don't read a lot of theology, but I, I, I enjoy making stuff up. Um, but I know that there's any number of highly respected, probably good people that I think are ignorant and unstable because they are teaching things that are just absolutely wrong with doctorates or THDs or something like that. They are, we, are, we are faced with people teaching falsehood out of St. Paul, people twisting things to make it mean something else. Now, so what, what hints could we get from this passage? Because if we go right back up to the top, there's going to be a number of things that are evident in this passage that Peter appeals to and wants you to think about. This is now the second letter. Well, like they can't count to two. I mean, they, they know they got first Peter. It's the second letter. Oh, good. Thank you, Peter. You're obvious. Captain Obvious. Well, he mentions it's the second letter for a reason. Not because people can't keep track. Oh, I thought there were three. No, there are two. Because in both of them, I have aroused your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember. You see, picking up anything here? Second letter, both of them, I've gone after you to remind you to remember things. Repetition and remembrance. We were talking to uh, my son and his fiance. What's Gun and Abby. Yesterday about certain things about marriage. You know, you had talked to couples. And about how in your life together, uh, every one of you should be going over the truths that you know are true having heard it once at church or having gone to a marriage seminar or doing whatever else you did, as Paul says, I think in Philippians, to write the same thing to you, it is not irksome to me. And it is safe for you. Repetition that we might remember. Are you in the stuff that you know repeatedly Do you ever say to yourself, reading through one of Paul's letters, and this sounds just like Ephesians, for heaven's sake. Why is he covering the same thing? Why is he talking about this again? Because we haven't learned this again yet. We have to structure our minds, and Peter knows that you have to structure your mind. He says, I want you to know this is on purpose, the second letter, and in both of them, I did this to remind you to remember. 
Your Christianity, what you learned from those who brought you into the faith, a lot of those basic things you're encouraged to hold fast to, the traditions of the elders, it calls them at one place, the things you knew, not to be led astray into new wacky views like Evan sometimes talks about. You should always remember whence you came, even if whence you came isn't quite right, but whence you came is a challenge to what you're hearing. You want to remember where you stand. You need to know where you stand. You need to remember where you stand. You need to be able to refer back to where you stood when something comes on that says something different to you. There are people who wander from the faith into things like Catholicism or Greek Orthodoxy. And, and, uh, and you say, do you, you remember what the gospel is? Do you still believe that gospel? Did you even think of recalling the gospel of Jesus Christ and putting it on a piece of paper in front of you and saying, what do I believe regarding the faith alone through, in Jesus Christ? What do I believe? Do I believe what the Orthodox are telling me I need to do, what sacraments I need to keep? Or how could, there's you know, even, not even conversion in Orthodoxy. You just become absorbed into the Godhead. There's no conversion in Catholicism other than calling yourself a Catholic now. We believe that you pass from death to life. Whatever you remember, whatever you're hearing from a popular teacher, say I decided to become popular, and it was last week because of the string section up here, and the pulpit was moved aside, I could get a stool, sit casually on it with a head mic, a shirt untucked, because I'm fat, a shirt untucked, relating to the youth, and pretty soon people with no brain would start coming to this church, start getting excited about this church, and I could say all my weird views. Democracy doesn't make truth, popularity doesn't make truth, but what you believe to be true stands in front of you as a guard even if you reject it in the end, it should have guarded you. It should have insisted on something. What did you believe in Christ already? How biblical was it that you believed? How about this new idea that comes in? Is this a, what kind of challenge does it actually disprove? Or is it just something I want to do because it's kind of popular? Then, without a break, you should remember what? The predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Right there, he just front loads you a set of authorities. The prophets, the Christ, his apostles. So for you to not be led astray, if you're going to go down to the bottom of the page knowing this beforehand, and I'm going to beware, I need to have established... What are, what's my canon of authority? Who's on the list? When people say, it's the prophets, Jesus Christ, the apostles, and the council of the, you know, the leaders of our church, our denomination, my catechism, my confession, that creed, this creed. What's my authority? Have you ever been questioned for what you believe on the basis of something that wasn't an authority? Well, how could you believe that? 
I was rejected from a, for a job uh, because I, I didn't hold to a particular doctrine that the church had come up with in the 300s. Um, because I, that proved I had disobeyed the commandment, you shall honor your father and mother. And since the church was our mother, I had violated the commandment of, of honoring my father and mother. It was, I, I thought, a tenuous argument. I didn't get the job. Now, you're going to have authorities. The reason the ignorant, the unstable, twist the teaching of Paul to their own destruction is they kind of know that the apostles are kind of big, big league. You're going to twist somebody, you twist them. So just because I believe in an authority doesn't mean I'm, that's not being used against me. The authority, that's what they're, that's their twisting. But if I believe in my authorities, if I say, whatever the canon you have is, these are my authorities, you better treat them well. In other words, I value oh, somebody the other day. You know I'm a C.S. Lewis fan. Um, so when C.S. Lewis quotes show up on Facebook, it hurts me. It offends me, generally. Because I don't think these are people that care what C.S. Lewis actually said. They like to post something by C.S. Lewis. And it's usually something really... They take something out of a paragraph that is absolutely innocuous, and it's the most innocuous sentence C.S. Lewis ever said. And said, I'm going to pick that. Put it on Facebook. Well, somebody the other day quoted something out of... Till We Have Faces, which we were just in, just reading as if it were Lewis's view, because they don't tell you where it came from, it's a piece of fiction, and it's one of the characters saying something that's questionable, as if it's true, but they just put the quote up and see it's Lewis's name at the bottom. No, that was the fox, it wasn't C.S. Lewis. We care if you can say, I, I want, you know my view about Michael Ward, um, with his planet Narnia. It's a crock, okay? I don't like it when someone takes the authorities that I chose, my fan club, and ruins it with that kind of stuff. Well, when you really have a, a belief in the prophets, the Christ, and his apostles, you not only are sus uh, susceptible to someone using it against you, you also should have a degree of veneration that goes, don't mess with them. Let's make sure the context is right. Let's make sure this is what Paul really thinks. Because we're a Pauline, Protestantism is largely Pauline. We shape our churches, our theologies, everybody goes to Romans, has a great time misinterpreting Paul. Who's on your authority list? Is it this? I like, th I like this because it sort of picks up what you would consider the canon of Scripture, right? With some variations. You got the prophets, you have the Son of God, you have, you have his apostles. What's next? Verse 3. First of all, now, the, the matter that Peter's talking about is the, is the end. 
We remember the predictions of the prophets, the commandment of the Lord, the teaching of the apostles. But he's talking about how you deal with the end times and what those are dealing with. We're not going there. We're going with this basic problem of how do we not misinterpret the passages that we're looking at so that we don't end up doing the absolute nonsense with end time stuff that we generally do. Or any subject. First of all, you must understand this, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing. Well, that, yeah. Following their own passions. So what if you just got to... We get, The ignorant and the unstable are not merely stupid. Okay? They have a reason. We were in a conversation with an African guy I know, uh, and uh, he was asking a question about some woman he knew was asking why we never referred to God the Father as God the Mother. Uh, because we're misogynists? I don't know. Hate women? Maybe that's it. So we talked about it. We talked about how the scriptures deal with God as masculine or, or assign male pronouns to him. Whatever. Masculine, not male. Blah, 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 blah. I said, but the next question you need to ask this person, why does it matter? To you. I know why it matters to me to refer to God the Father as Father and masculine and use a male pronoun. That's how the Bible treats it. But why do you bring it up? Scoffers serve something else. Okay? They're not humble seekers after truth. They don't have these questions existing in a vacuum that just, oh my gosh. Um, this could be, well, what about calling God uh, mother? And I know, oddly enough, that tracks really well with the feminism of the age. They need to admit. You need to expose their rationale for their scoffing. Because it's not merely I'm dealing with retarded people. The actual question, what are you up to? What are, you, what are you trying to do? Because scoffing, scoffing is to tear down what claim the righteous position had, the, the, a, a true position, to make it look worse so people would, without questioning the scoffer's position, pick it. The scoffer makes the bad look, the good look bad, so no one will ask them why they think this. On what authority would you ever call God the Father, God the Mother? Oh, on your own authority. No prophets, the Son of God, the apostles, none of them went that direction, so why are you going that direction? And as soon as they have to admit that they're doing it to be trendy with the, the hip kids at Wheaton College, or ever they end up going to school, What's going on in the church today? What kind of ignorance and instability is interpreting Paul today? They're going to do it. They don't want that exposed. They'd rather have you twisting in the wind because they're making fun that you believe the world was created 6,000 years ago in six days. 
or you believe the end times is nigh, whatever it is. In this case, where is the promise of his coming? And this was 2,000 years ago, right? Boy, the scoffers would have a heyday with us. Well, where is, where is your Jesus now? Thought he was coming back soon. Maranatha. Oh, they could really lay it on thick. But when, they, when it says, they scoff at you, recognize where they're coming from, they've got to lower your position to have theirs unquestioned, because theirs when questioned, what does it say they're doing? Following their own passions. What is a passionate idea? A passionate idea is that I want it to be so. Um, guys are susceptible to this because we think beautiful women have a right, dear heavens, to be good. Goddesses even. If they're beautiful, we believe absolutely they're wonderful people. And all the women go, oh, you don't know. You don't know diddly about women. Well, I don't care. I want the beautiful woman so she has to be godly in my mind. She has such a, you're a guy at the end of his relationship trying to explain his girlfriend's actions. Well, you know, she's had a hard day. It's kind of like a mom, you know, the usual. Oh, he hasn't eaten. No, he's a brat. Oh, he needs his sleep. No, he's a brat. Passions rest in their, this is where they get their idea. Because ignorant and unstable people don't have an idea that they can lay in front of you and go, well, look at that. That looks like a diamond. That's, that's amazing. You had bet, for, for you to be, now this is admitting that you may be sitting at a place that you're not quite correct in, theologically. You have to be ready to be taught by the word, by someone who does know, and you need to be defended against those who don't. So these are just sort of trying to be as generic, not telling you what is true, but telling you how things happen. Establish yourself in the word by repetition and what, what you hold, know what you hold and why you hold it. Who you hold it from, what is your canon of authorities. Realize that they're up to something in their scoffing. And they're just doing it because they want to. But the end result is going to satisfy a passion in them. And what do they do? Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things have continued as they were from the beginning of creation. So they tell you a little story. A little narrative. Peter responds by, say, by saying, they deliberately ignore this fact that by the word of God, heavens existed long ago. He tells them a story back at them. So what am I going to drag out of that? It's the narrative matters. You tell people a story. Some stories are true. Some stories are false. And in the story that we're supposed to tell, because story will, will be part of the armature. You're not, just, you're not just a philosophical structure. What is your doctrine of man? What is your doctrine of God? What is your doctrine of the church? You are also someone who believes in a series of events 
from time immemorial where God stepped in and I'm going to make the universe and I'm going to do this and then the fall happened and then the Christ happened and then the end happened. We're telling a story, not just advocating a particular relationship of ideas. They, verse 5, deliberately ignore. And then he tells you in 8, do not ignore this one fact. People evade parts of the data when they're writing their story. Remember, they're serving their wants, they're serving some other, their canon of acceptable authorities. When people are falling all over themselves to make sure the LNMOP crowd does not object to your ministry, they're not operating by the word of God. They're operating by their passions, their wants. They ignore what's in the scriptures. And he lines out some things about God. One day is a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow. He's not wishing that any should perish. How you tell the story. Since, you'll see, verse 11, since all these things, where's that other since? Since we, you wait for these, uh, where is that? What verse is that? 14. 14. Ah, there it is. I should, I should always bold everything I'm thinking because I can't find it otherwise. Since you wait for these, since all these things, verse 11, are thus to be dissolved. Now you might be more interested this morning in, oh, everything's going to be dissolved? What do you mean the yeah, what is dissolved? What is this, the end of the world? Is this sort of that metaphor for the uprooting of, of the cosmic system? I, not our business this morning. Since this is there, it plugs into how you live. What is the story? You've heard me say before that, that uh, every one of us has a narrative that we're writing about ourselves where we're kind of the hero and everybody is really going to admire us at some point and finally figure out how cool we are. That's generally the story we've all written, right? Uh, finally, they'll recognize my skills. We're not real good at writing, and as I've mentioned before, we pick the wrong hero. You know, we might be more the villain or the goofball, you know, second pirate from the left. Um, minor character in our own life. But the narrative that you believe in is what you try to live up to. Right? Because you're, you're, you're doing improv. We walked out onto the... I, it's it's kind of nice being a pastor because you have a stage. You walk out onto the stage and you live according to the story that the, the script you thought you were given. And people come into your life and walk up to you and say something and you are supposed to say something back that's what Jesus would approve. What the story asks for. If you're writing a story that's self-aggrandizing, that's featuring your passions, and other people are coming into your story looking smarter than you, you scoff at them. 
You denigrate their views to support your passions and you destroy yourself. Since this story exists, since you could tell one story and since you could tell another story, and since we live according to the stories we hold, examine your stories. Examine your canon of authorities. Examine what you repeatedly look at if you've watched Monty Python Search for the Holy Grail more times than you've read the New Testament. You've got a problem. Not that it isn't funny. I know it's very funny. But these were written for our reminder that we would remember. And when people can quote, you shall not pass, more times than they can quote anything out of the scriptures. Check yourself, because you don't want to be, knowing this beforehand, beware, lest you be carried away by the error of lawless men. There are Christians who are sitting in churches, in ministries, giving their, their tax-free dollars away to some lunatic. You don't want to be one of those. Wherever you end up, the narrative matters. And then in verse 14, this is the fifth point. I have these numbered because that's easy to do. Therefore, beloved, verse 14, since you wait for these, be zealous to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. You are to be zealous that God would find you in the end, because we're talking about end times in the passage and ignoring it. Whenever the end is, you're supposed to be zealous to be found by him in two conditions, holy and at peace. That's your target. Zealous for righteousness and zealous for righteousness that's true righteousness. Zealous for peace. Where that's sort of the ultimate, I think I mentioned this last week or a couple weeks ago. That's kind of the dipstick. You can walk into the most legalistic church, the most correct theological church, and run a dipstick into the average family and the average saint and find that they're not at peace. They are not tranquil. You have to check because instability, not having a zeal for the right thing. And sometimes it's something as, as subtle as being zealous to be accepted by the other Christians. Well, that's, that's not the measure. Zealous to be found by him, right? Found by him. Christ, not all the ministries done in Christ's name. I have a friend who's a liberal vicar. Scary liberal. And we stay in touch. We just posted the Princeton uh, Declaration of, a Christ, of, the, of, of the Christian Faith and Culture. Princeton, for heaven's sake. God hasn't been close to Princeton in, you know, a century. I don't want to read it. It's going to be really disappointing. But they've got, they claimed in the title that they are speaking for Christianity. They're concerned about Donald Trump. Because it's Princeton. I don't care if you're concerned about Donald Trump too. You all could be concerned about Donald Trump. But 
We're not waiting to be found by the Christian church or by the Christian culture or things that bear the name of Christ. Have we lived up to their standard of righteousness? We're waiting to be found by Jesus Christ living up to that. That Jesus Christ finds us at peace. Because you know you can show up at church with all defense mechanisms about looking tranquil enough to be considered Christian, living up to whatever the expectation is here. Or you could be saying, I'm, I, I know I'm living up to Christ's expectation, how he will find me, because when he looks at me, he knows if it's peace or it's pretext. Now, when it says in verse 15, and I didn't keep going on with numbers here, because I didn't really think this was a way, of, a way of thinking about your life that would guard you. Count the forbearance of our Lord as salvation. In all of this, we know that we've struggled with various things. You could all give a testimony that would talk about various struggles that you've had spiritually, intellectually, uh, with other people, relationally. And how God was patient with you. And grace came to you to lift you out of the particular thing you're facing right now. Consider the patience, the forbearance of the Lord as salvation. Realize that this is to make you, uh, deliver you from this. Deliver, deliver you from all the error that is in Christianity. You want to live yourself, wherever you and your family go, wherever that ends up, as one of somebody that God thinks you're one of the faithful. You've been saved from this. You might live a lonely life. You might never fit in to one of the happy, clappy Christian churches. And there are dear believers in those churches. There's dear believers in a lot of churches. But you want to have Jesus Christ define your life and godliness. You want the Holy Spirit to push you forward in these things. Because it's his salvation and his patience with you, putting up with the way you are, is his salvation. So also our beloved brother Paul. Now when it says the error of lawless men, in verse 17, it's connecting that to the ignorant. We have the ignorant and unstable, and then it says watch out for the lawless and lose your stability. It seems to be paralleling those categories. You might not agree with that, but you know, I, I, my, my eye caught that when it says lose your own stability and it said unstable men interpreting Paul. Lawlessness. Now what's going to be, when you read a passage like that, what is, what, what is the ignorant and unstable going to do with it? As they do the other scriptures, here's something by St. Peter. What is the ignorant person in the unstable? The error of lawless men. And then they're going to rail against antinomianism, which is anti-the law, anti-nomos. And they'll defend the legalism of their church. But St. Paul is against legalism in the church. So we covered it in Galatians. So, they'll have a narrative. They'll have a passion. They'll have a zeal. They won't be able to ground it 
in true authorities. They will cite, just like a liberal, they'll cite studies about what happens when you let people have access to computers or go dancing. My, uh, my sister posted, my mom, grandma, my dad's mom, who died back in 1990. Um, she was born in 1900. And at 15, she signed the Lincoln and Lee Legions, which is a weird group. I mean, Lincoln, picture of Lincoln on one side, picture of Robert E. Lee on the other. The Lincoln Lee Legion vow against intoxicating liquors. Okay, it was all part of the, the prohibition movement. And there's my mother, grandma's signature, Lillian Leggett, 15 years old. Oh, there's a narrative. We watched it happen as a nation. There's a passion for it. There's a zeal for it. There are true authorities of the same sort of thing. But once you start examining these things, once I realize who my true authorities are, once I realize who my God is, what the source of information from him is, that I'm not supposed to be led by my passions, I'm supposed to be led by the revelation of God. Um, it undoes that legalism. We don't become lawless because we're under the law of Christ. The law of love, the law of liberty. It's a, we have a guiding function. The new covenant is not that you would become, hey, nothing matters, but the new covenant is it matters as much to me as it matters to God and I don't need a rule. Because I understand who my God is and I want what he wants and his Holy Spirit is in me to provide it. It's a law, but it's a law of who you are not how you act. So when it tells you to note, when you know this beforehand, what I'd like you to just always be aware of, and I might be a bit of a cynic, okay? Not a scoffer, a cynic. We know certain things beforehand, and he warns you, since you know this beforehand, beware that the teaching of the scriptures is a criminal enterprise. It is a way a lot of people make money. It's a way a lot of people get disciples after themselves. Religion is a standard place where you can get people's affections and looking up to you, and believe me, it feels good. You've been admired, right? Okay, some of you are like, oh, I have never been admired. I have not been admired much, but I like what little I get. Okay? Now this is, look at, look at this, look at the good student side. There's no evangelism on the good student side. None whatsoever. All the juvenile delinquents. But there's only, what, 30 people here this morning? 35? I don't know what. But I like that 30, 35. I like that every face in this room is turned towards this pulpit behind which I am standing. That a microphone is in front of my face, not in front of yours. Oh, you could yell out. You could make an objection. You may be heard. I'll just lean closer into the mic. I have notes for what I'm going to say. You all have them. What I'm going to say, I'm going to go home with this little recording and post onto the internet so that other people 
will be forced to hear me. I love it. I really do. With that much desire to be admired, coming up with a new view, some people come up with new views just so it'll be different. Just so that they don't they can get disciples. That's what Paul warned the Ephesian elders about in Miletus. They're going to lead disciples after themselves. It's designed to take you away. It works on stupid, impulsive, sinful people. And the warning is don't be a sucker for it. There is a path you can take just to keep you away from Evan falling to his lusts for power. but grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in Christ. It's in knowledge of Him. It's in the experience with His grace. Check off the boxes. Is it Him? Is it His grace? Is it my knowledge of Jesus Christ? Or is it my fitting into Christianity as I practice it at that church over there? This has a glory that lasts first to him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Other churches, other places, yeah, of course we think we're somewhat okay, right? There are better, bigger ministries with better church buildings, more glorious church buildings. The glory we have in this is the same. If they're obedient to Christ, they have the glory, but it's not because they got cooler buildings or longer terms of business. I like good architecture, but the glory of Jesus Christ and the gospel lasts into eternity. That's what you have. And hence he says, Amen. So let's say Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we're thankful. Guard us from our own judgment sometimes. Point us to the right measurement devices. Remind us of what we've learned. Remind us from whom we learned it. Remind us what story we're telling. Guard us, Lord, against scoffing and our passions. In your Son's name, amen.